Well, good morning. We are inviting our young people to uh, Children's Church as they go out. The teachers will eagerly be waiting for them, and they'll be helping them to uh, learn more about how to participate more fully in worship. We are in the middle of a, uh, a spring series of both reading and preaching as we move through the book of Revelation. This final book of the Bible is the, uh, the New Testament book of prophecy that shows us things that are happening now and in the future. The text we're looking at today is a text that looks forward to a, a point in time we might call the day of the Lord, a, a day described by language of the harvest, a day in which the judgment of God is brought to bear on humanity. It's a challenging text, and it's full of some images that are uh, challenging. I think, uh, uh, to use a modern phrase, we might say we, we almost need to give a trigger warning as we move into the passage. Some of the language is visceral. It's full of uh, uh, some images that are meant to, to strike us and to, to disturb us. When we read the, read the text, when we're done with it, we'll affirm together that this is the word of the Lord. And in so doing, we'll say, not that it's easy, but that perhaps we need to be triggered. That God, who gives us His Word, has purposes for us, and where it challenges us and disturbs us, we trust He has good purpose and good reason to do so. I'm going to read this passage together, and then again we'll affirm this is God's Word as we uh, seek to receive it with hope and expectation. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through chapter 15, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, 
Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, the summer of 1861, Julia Ward Howe was in Washington, D.C. with her husband and a number of officials and dignitaries. They were watching the Union Army march in front of them, and as they went, they were singing one of their songs, a song that had become uh, very popular towards the beginning of the war. It was a, uh, an alteration of a, a camp revival song with ridiculous lyrics about John Brown's body moldering in the grave, but his truth was marching on. One of the men next to Julia, uh, Ward Howe, knew she was something of a successful poet, and he turned to her and said, it's a great tune. I wish someone could put some decent lyrics to that song. The next morning, Julia woke in the wee hours of the morning as the sun had just begun to rise and lyrics seemed to stream into her head. She said as she remembered the account, she sat and wrote on a, with a stub of a pencil on a piece of paper, barely able to see it in the dim morning light. And she wrote in one setting what would come to be known as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. One of the great songs of the Civil War, one of the more uh, famous songs or hymns uh, in the history of America. The opening verse of that song is taken from the text that we have before us today. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. It's a powerful song reflecting on a, a difficult period of time in American history. There's a couple of lessons I, I draw from it. and the, the first is when humans are experiencing grim and difficult circumstances, they need to wrestle with grim and difficult theology. The Civil War was just such a time. The horrors of American slavery uh, were wrapped together with what would become a, a four-year horror of bloodshed and carnage. The most soldiers ever killed in any single war were during that war. And only recently uh, did uh, the, total, uh, the sum total of all death in American wars get surpassed by that single war itself. It was deeply affecting people, and it dealt with really grim and brutal realities. And so Julia Ward Howe drew on really grim, br brutal biblical language. The passage we're looking at today teaches us things that we probably would rather not think about. It teaches us something important about God in particular, it describes the expression of God's judgment in the day of the Lord as being the wrath of God. And in very, very vivid depiction, it describes God's justice being meted out as if grapes were trampled in a wine press. It describes the result as a, a, a flow of blood 
It was as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Now, the equivalent in, in our, in our um, measuring system would be about 180 miles. So it was, the, it was a, a scope of land larger than the size of Israel. It's a pretty disturbing image, isn't it? The passage goes on to say, however, as we look and it, 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 we turn the corner in chapter 15, and we glance forward and we see what will be coming in the next chapter of the book of Revelation, and it describes the final series of plagues which it calls the bowls of wrath of God. What the passage is teaching us is that God, part of God's character is that He is angry about sin. The wrath of God is described in this passage. Now, in 1861, Julia Ward Howe could write uh, pretty uh, openly and pretty freely. Uh, she herself uh, was not uh, standing in the stream of historic Christian orthodoxy. Uh, she reject, rejected many key truths, but it was a, a common understood reality of the culture that God was a God of judgment. We live in a different culture today, and I suspect if someone wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic today, they would use different imagery and different language. It probably wouldn't include the image of the grapes of wrath, right, being uh, stored up to be uh, stepped on in the Day of Judgment. That a very, we, would, we wouldn't tend to think in those terms today. Our, our view of God is, in many ways, been sanitized. The argument I'd like to make today as we look at the passage is that what is being taught here is not only central to Christianity our understanding of Christianity, but it actually provides a necessary window for us to understand the world in which we live. Much as it may be challenging for us to wrestle with this topic, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, without it we can't make sense of our world, we don't understand Christianity, and we don't actually understand God as He's revealed Himself to be. We'll do three things in this uh, passage as we look at the passage today, three things in the sermon. First of all, we'll start by thinking about God. What does this passage teach us about who God is? Secondly, we'll say, what does it show us about who we are, what our needs are, what it means to be human? And third and finally, we'll see uh, what it shows us that's essential for understanding the gospel. So God, self, gospel, here we go. What does it show us about God? Uh, the Bible uh, teaches us that God has many, many aspects, or we would say attributes. That we are taught in the Bible that God is a God who is a, is a God of love and mercy, but also holiness and judgment. Both of these things are true. And so when we, we speak of God as being a God of love, we're not ruling out in Christian theology that God also has just anger. And when we say that, that God is a God of wrath, we're not ruling out the reality that He also expresses love. And it's very hard for humans to hold those different ideas together. It's hard for us to hold anything together about God. And so what we tend to do, our, our, our natural downstream human movement as humans, is to simplify those things so they're easier to think about. We tend to think of God as only one way or the other. If you grew up in a traditional culture, you would have looked around at a world that was full of suffering 
and brokenness. And it wouldn't be hard for you to say, you know, if there are gods out there, the gods are certainly angry about something. And most traditional religions had means of trying to deal with the anger of the gods. Uh, but in most modern ways of thinking, our modern adaptions of uh, theology and religion, we swing the pendulum the other way. We do live in a, a time where we've been able to manage a great deal of suffering, not perfectly, but we can have an illusion of pleasantness in the world. We would rather think of the world in those terms. And so modern depictions of God generally tend to be of an all-loving God who has no wrath, no anger, or no judgment. Now we think uh, most people today in America, this statistics tell us that the vast majority of people in America still believe in some sort of divine higher power. Maybe they're spiritual but not religious. But the vast majority of depictions of God are of God who is loving but not wrathful. He has no justice or judgment. He's not the God revealed to us in the Bible. And so we start from the beginning of recognizing that God who has shown himself to us in Scripture depicts himself as being both merciful and just, both loving and holy. A God who brings salvation, but a God who is seriously angry about sin. The second thing we want to recognize about God is that these attributes are shared by the entirety of God. We, we recognize that God has revealed Himself to be His Father, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God in three persons. Sometimes in, in our uh, sort of sloppy theological thinking, we could say, well, maybe God the Father is angry, but God the Son, Jesus, is very loving. And so when Jesus came to earth, he did something, uh, you know, salvation, he convinced God the Father to love us. Now, that uh, would be a simple story, but it would be completely wrong from what God's revealed in the Bible. In the Bible, two things are true. First of all, it's the love of God that sends the Son into the world. It's understood, even in the most famous of New Testament passages, that the love of God does not stand in opposition. It's not excluding His just anger at sin. Let me give you an example. Probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We know if there's something about God, and when we, we speak of God in that setting, we're thinking of God the Father. For God so loved the world, what did He do? He sent His only Son that whoever should believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. John didn't end there. He continues his thought in verse 17. He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And just a few verses later in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 36, he expands this idea. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So just one, one paragraph in the New Testament. John, John, I think most likely the same John who, who is showing us this vision in Revelation. But the gospel, in the Gospel of John, John shows us the Father who sends the Son because of His love to save us from the just anger He has against sin. He depicts in one paragraph God is both loving and angry about sin. 
I mean, the same is true in reverse. One of the interesting features of the book of Revelation is it shows Jesus, the lamb who was slain, as being the one who was engaged in judgment. If you've been reading along in Revelation, you might remember that John chapter 6 was one in which we see a picture of the end of the world, the day of God's judgment, and it says a whole range of people, the whole spectrum of people who are not connected to Jesus in faith when they encounter God will want to hide in rocks because of his overwhelming holiness. And this is what they'll say according to John, they'll say, The great day of the wrath of God has come. Who can save us? They would say, oh, would the rocks fall on us? Who can save us from the wrath of the Lamb? It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? In the Bible, Jesus is presented also in this three-dimensional way. He is, after all, the fullness of God in human flesh. He is loving He comes to us in humility, offering salvation and mercy. He comes to give himself as a ransom for many. But when the Bible pictures the day of judgment, God coming, his wrath being displayed on earth, Jesus is the agent through which that happens. This is is what I'm telling you, incredibly unoriginal, right? I'm, I'm I'm not... taking a fringe idea. I'm not making something up. This is found time and again. Jesus spoke about this himself. This is, he said, I'm going to do this. I will be, you will see, he said, one day the Son of Man, that's how Jesus described himself, coming on the clouds of glory with angels in the day of judgment. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus said about himself. He said, I come to you now in humility and lowness and grace and mercy, I will return as an agent of judgment. Even the the central, I mean, we would say, the central creed, the earliest creed of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, says Jesus, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. There is in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, mercy and love, as well as just anger at sin. These two things together will propel us forward to understanding salvation and the cross. But they're here together. God shows us this is who I am in, in all its fullness. Now, so what does, this, uh, what does this tell us about ourselves, however? You know, whenever we, whenever we hear of God's uh, anger at sin, and whenever, I think honestly when we hear the word wrath, What we usually do is we picture human wrath and we project it onto God. When when humans are wrathful, it's usually an overblown reaction to something small. But we take things way out of proportion. We act as if we're the righteous ones and we stand in judgment over other people and we condemn them and we express our anger at them. One of the things I think can give us pause when we hear about the wrath of God is we tend to think, okay, the more I talk about God having just anger at sin, then the more angry I will become myself. Or maybe we we find ourselves thinking, uh, uh, the kind of people who would believe in the wrath of God are going to end up being very wrathful themselves. The Bible does something very different, however. In fact, it tells us the exact opposite is true. It tells us we live in a world in which the need for justice 
is so fundamental that we are going to crave justice and we will strive after it one way or another. And so what the Bible tells us is in spite of our, maybe our intuitions on this subject, the pathway to being less wrathful is to entrust judgment and wrath to God who can do it perfectly. This is, this is how Paul put the pieces together in, in Romans chapter 12. He says, Beloved, do not seek to avenge yourself, but leave it to the judgment of God. And he actually says, leave it to the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you are convinced that God has a day of judgment, and He will bring perfect justice to each person and each situation, then you no longer need to be the ultimate judge. If you don't believe that there's a final judgment, then you're going to have to do everything you can to get imperfect, man-centered justice and judgment now. Let me just make an argument for this. Uh, again, going back to 1861, Battle Hymn of the Republic is written, probably a vast majority of Americans believed in the Day of Judgment. And many Americans did horrible, terrible, sinful things to each other. Fast forward, we're in a different time period now. Largely speaking, Americans don't really believe in a Day of Judgment. Let me put the question before you for your own observation. Have we really become nicer, friendlier, gentler, more loving people on a whole? I would argue that it's exactly because we've lost our grasp on the justice of God that we feel we must get it ourselves. We seek justice and judgment on our own with our own means we watched a, a movie just the other night. It was uh, called a man, a man Called Otto. Some of you have seen this. shows the wonderful diversity of Tom Hanks as an actor. I have to admit it was strange to see that Mr. Rogers had become such a mean, angry, bitter old man. Uh, in this movie, Tom Hanks plays a, a, what we might call a curmudgeon. He's an angry man. He feels he's surrounded by idiots. He, he, he deals with the world from on high through his own sense of self-righteous judgment. He is quick to judge and quick to condemn. It was interesting to me as I watched the movie, as I saw his, his uh, eagerness to join, in his sorrow, to join his wife in death. He clearly didn't have any concern about the day of judgment. He had no sense of concern that if he died, he would come into God's judgment and face a holy God and have to give account for his life. I think there's a connection there. If there's no judgment, then we are the judges. If there is no God who can bring a final reckoning, then we must be gods ourselves. I think we are living with the consequences of that now. So how do we, how do we live then? The Bible tells us that we have a problem that doesn't initially occur to us. Most Americans today are moving through life, most modern Western people are moving through life with a view of the world that says our main problem is we're empty. I don't have enough love, I don't have enough self-esteem, I don't have enough respect, I don't feel good enough about myself. And there are certainly elements of truth in that that reflect the way we are made. But if you were to ask Jesus, what is the major problem with humans? 
he would say, it's not that you're empty, it's that you're full. You're full of all the wrong kind of stuff. Jesus said, your heart is like a fountain of corruption, and it's overflowing out of your own selfishness and self-absorption. It is flowing outward, out into your words and your actions, out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. What this passage shows us today is that there is, from God's perspective, an incredible problem that we have as people. We are overflowing in our natural state. We are overflowing with our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and what the Bible would call sin. And so the problem that we have is not that we're empty and we don't get enough good feelings in our life. There's, again, some element of truth in the right context. The main problem that we have is that at the deepest level, we live as enemies of God, and we are overflowing onto ourselves and around us to continue some of the graphic language as if we are vomiting outward all of the selfishness of our hearts. What the text tells us is that in, in doing so, we are becoming increasingly ripe for judgment. That's that's the picture offered here, is as if out of the overflow of the heart, our life and our actions, we are becoming like ripe grapes on the vine. What the Bible tells us is that our biggest problem is not what we automatically think. Yes, it's true that many of us have all kinds of other manner of problems in our lives, But the biggest problem is not that we think too little of ourselves, but that in our heart of hearts we reject God and we want to rule everything on our own. We've set ourselves up as the enemies of God. In so doing, we harm those around us. We worship in all of the wrong ways. We worship the wrong things. We elevate ourselves, and we not only harm our neighbors, but we become offensive to God himself. Now, let's be honest, that's not a picture any of us want to think of, is it? It's not, it's not our intuitive desire. And maybe you, you came in today and you thought, boy, I'm just staggering out of bed this morning. I still haven't adjusted to the time change, and it's been a hard week, and I feel things pulling me down on every side. And you're thinking, I just got to get to church and get filled up. And then that darn preacher is talking about the wrath of God of all things. How can that possibly help me? It's the last thing I needed this morning. I, I, I already felt kind of bad about myself. You see, the understanding of who we are, however, shows us a powerful solution. The salvation of God only makes sense when we understand God's anger at sin. That's really what is the, what's going on in the passage as much as anything else. The backdrop of all of this is a day of judgment. But in many ways, this harvest of the earth scene is pressing us to a point of decision as it presents before us two different harvests. You notice that there are two harvests going on here, and in both of them, the Son of Man on the cloud, who is Jesus, is intimately involved. He is the one who swings the sickle across the earth to gather the grain, and later we're told in Revelation 19.19 that He is the one who who steps on the grapes in the wine press. He's intimately involved in the judgment of the living and the dead. But 
I think the reason that John expresses this vision the way that he does is because Jesus himself talked about this often. One of his favorite things to talk about in describing the kingdom of God is the way in which the kingdom comes in the day of judgment like a harvest where there's a separation. Sometimes he says it's like wheat and tares being separated or good fish and bad fish. But he says one way or another, what you're looking for in the kingdom of God is that one day the kingdom will come in its fullness and who you worship and who you're connected to will be fully and finally and ultimately revealed. There are two harvests, however, and I think following the teaching of Jesus, we're meant to understand that the first harvest, the grain harvest, is the Son of Man calling to Himself those that are trusting in Him and connected by faith. Earlier in the same chapter, the, the, the people of God who are marching with Jesus in faithful obedience, even in suffering unto death, they were described as the first fruits of the grain harvest. I think it's connected. We're meant to see that here is the full, widespread taking in and gathering of all God's people. It includes a gathering, but it doesn't include the judgment scene that we might, and it could have been uh, uh, given in that, in that setting. The second gathering, the second uh, uh, harvesting of the grapes includes not only a gathering, but also a picture of judgment. It is a, it is a graphic picture of judgment, is it not? If it, if it makes you uncomfortable, that means you're listening. It's meant to. It's meant to be uncomfortable. And through that lens, we have a picture of a very uncomfortable and messy world, a, a justice of God that takes seriously the reality of your life and the experiences that are around us. I was uh, rereading for... Uh, uh, partly in prep for the sermon of a story of how a, 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 a madman uh, entered an Amish schoolhouse in 2006 and killed six of the school children. What kind of world is that? You can't, you can't hear that story and not think there's something deeply wrong with the world we live in. The Bible doesn't whitewash those hard realities but it paints a picture in which we find place for those difficult human experiences. And it says God cares and he has a justice that is, that is deep enough to account for the worst of human atrocities. We're not meant to end there, are we? There are two, there are two uh, judgments, there are two harvests, but the, the framing of this is also as we move into chapter 15, picking up the imagery of the Passover and the Red Sea. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, quickly fill you in. The, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the primary story of salvation is how God saves His people by bringing them out of their bondage in Egypt. They are passed over by the angel of judgment because the Lamb was slain in their place and they pass through the Red Sea into the promised land. Well, that image is still very much in the mind of John as he tells us this, this story. He, he tells us that the, the, the seven plagues of God's wrath, the seven bowls of God's wrath will be like plagues, like the ten plagues that brought them out of Egypt. And he, he actually says, 
that when these people are standing here on the other side of judgment, when they have passed through the judgment, they sing the song of Moses, Passover, and the song of the Lamb. You see what he's doing? He's given us so many points of contact. He's like, again and again, hey, this is what I'm talking about. The reason why we can come face to face with the judgment and the justice with the wrath of God and not be destroyed by it is because that God so loved the world He sent His only Son. The, the difference between the, the grain gathered in, in, and brought into the storehouse and the grapes that are trampled, the difference between the two is the Passover lamb. We're told here that the grapes were trod outside the city. The Gospels tells us that the outside the city is the place of judgment and a place for a person who has been outcast. It's the place where Jesus was taken when he gave himself willingly and freely. It was there outside the city that the blood of Jesus flowed freely. When the Bible describes the salvation of God and Jesus, it does so in graphic language. It is visceral. I mean, our crosses are often gold or kind of clean. We're so used to the symbol that we're not, we're not immediately inundated by the heaviness of it all. But, but the, the height of the audacity of the gospel is it says not only does God account for brutality in the world, but in Jesus God himself entered in and on the cross the horror of judgment was poured out on Christ. See what God does not do when he faces suffering and horror and sin and oppression and all of the nastiness of humanity. He doesn't say, oh, forget about it. He didn't say, oh, let's pretend that didn't happen. We'll just turn a blind eye. Let's go back. Let's tell a nice story. We'll, we'll, why, don't, why, don't we, why don't we have a nicer story to focus on instead? But he not only accounts for it in judgment, but our salvation is that the Lamb of God entered in and experienced fully the wrath of God for sin. And all who are in him by faith who have recognized the depth of their need and have thrown themselves on the mercy of God can say the wrath of God was satisfied. We sing that in one of our songs. On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As we grasp these hard realities... We not only see God as he is, we not only account for humans as they are, but we actually have a deeper understanding of the gospel. Do you notice what they're doing on the other side of the sea? They're singing. Great are your deeds, O God. They can sing of God's holiness in that song. You alone are holy, but they also can celebrate the expression of God's character because in Christ they have been passed over. The mercy of God fully on display for all that would trust in Jesus. We close with two questions. The first is simply this What will you say when, after you die, you will come face to face with God? 
have many answers you could give. You, you, could, you could rely on the fact that maybe this isn't really how God deals with sin. You take your chances there. You could, you could maybe look at the good things you've done in life and hope they outweigh the bad. The same text that shows us the love and mercy of God shows us that the standard is not graded on a scale, but the very holiness of God will be set before us. And you may be tempted to lean into all of the religious things you've done. Maybe you'll think, you'll, you'll plead the fact that you went to church or you're parents were Christians, you had some kind of association. The same text that shows us the salvation and mercy of God reminds us again and again that it is by faith in Jesus we are saved. There's only one answer we can give as we stand face to face with the holiness of God, and that is to say, I'm with him. I'm in him. I am throwing myself wholly on Jesus. Second question is this. Will you sing about it? I want to invite our musicians to come forward. They're going to lead us in song in just a second. But if you look with me at the songs here, it's an incredible, incredible opportunity for us to do exactly what they do in Revelation. Having reflected on the holiness of God and the depth of His mercy the natural response for those who've seen the mercy of God in Christ is the same. We're going to sing two songs here, and they're, they're both, I think, celebrating in different ways. The first is to sing that He is worthy. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, He ransomed, he ransomed His people. He's worthy of our praise. The second song is similar, but it moves on a, different, a little bit of a different tangent it is a visceral song maybe you're familiar with this let me just give you another trigger warning this is what we're going to sing there's a fountain filled with blood that's that's kind of crazy right drawn from emmanuel's vein and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains it has such a nice rhyme you can almost miss what we're going to sing you're saying, my hope, were I to stand face to face with God, is the blood of Jesus. The messy, gory, visceral blood of Jesus poured out on the cross. I needed that. That is what is required to save me from my own sin from God's just wrath. Friends, the cure is deeper and more visceral than you ever imagined your disease was. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's sing together.